0: You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. This series is miscellaneous episodes from Douglas's website. Today's episode is Serving the Poor, Second Thoughts. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Hello, my name is Douglas Jacoby. And this is a special podcast on serving the poor. It was late 1985. Our Aeroflot jet had taken us from Moscow, at that time in the Soviet Union, to India. But in the middle of the night, we made a surprise stop in Uzbekistan. We staggered off the plane and for a couple of hours without any information contemplated what we had got ourselves into. In fact, there were five... Men who were converging on India. It was a scouting visit. The ministry in London was trying to decide where to focus our energy, where to invest, which large Indian city to begin in. The group included John Louis, who's lived many years of his life in India, in fact, is a, um, a Malaysian, an Indian Malaysian, Mohan Nanjandan, who's a very Western fellow but is actually an Indian, Douglas Arthur who's from the United States, Mark Templer, who's an Italian-born American, and then myself. We finally got to our city. We landed as the sun was setting. And I remember the thick clouds of smog which diffracted the sunlight and the huge crows looked like vultures who were soaring above the city. We took a taxi and 40 minutes later, We were surprised when he said, we're there, because we thought we were in the middle of, well, I would just say, uh, some kind of a slum. And he said, no, this is where your hotel is. And so we got out. I had been to the developing world before, uh, actually lived for a month in Malaysia, in the area of Kuala Lumpur. But nothing I had experienced, or even documentaries I'd seen on television, had prepared me for what I would see in India, it wasn't just the pollution or the dirt. There was dust in the air for sure. In fact, the leaves and all the trees were gray with the dust. The gray had pretty much eclipsed the green. It wasn't just the problems with electricity, the power going out, and not because of uh, an overtaxed electricity grid or because of a storm. This was routine to have power outages wasn't that the water was undrinkable, or even that the streets were filled with animals. I think it was the human side that touched our hearts, all of us, the enormous number of beggars and cripples. It was on this trip, my first time ever in India, that I touched a leper for the very first time. That evening, after we had some food, we went for a walk. People were everywhere. What looked like piles of rags on the pavement, on the sidewalk, were actually sleeping men, women, and children. And we had to step over them. We saw that there was this dust still in the air, heavy. It wasn't impossible to breathe, but it wasn't so easy. And it created a very eerie effect. With so many people sleeping, on the streets, on the sidewalks. Many of them die on the sidewalks. One problem is trucks going out of control. The driver's not paying attention. He runs up over the curb, and people are killed. I read afterwards that each morning in this city, some 500 corpses are lifted just from the sidewalk. The next day, we asked a driver, a taxi driver, please take us to the nicest part of the city. We just wanted to get our bearings. To have a reference point. What was the nicest part of that city seemed to be worse than the worst parts of the cities I'd ever been in in the United States. And I think that is still true, that comparison. We were, uh, to, to put it quite simply, blown away. I feel we were forever touched and changed. Ten days later, I was back in London. And we thought, we've got to do something. We wrote an article. I collaborated with Douglas Arthur. And we wrote an article. And later, this became a book called, I Was Hungry. It began an effort to help the poor, not just in India and other cities, but even the disadvantaged in the United Kingdom. We began an organization that was called LOVE. Let Our Vision Expand. This was 1986, 1987. The acronym was later changed to Helping Other, Other People Everywhere, or HOPE, HOPE Worldwide. And this was the birth of an agency which I think is, has done a great job, has been very efficient in meeting the needs of the poor in so many countries. Now, I don't want to discount the good that came from that initial scouting visit, because today there are thousands and thousands of, of men and women who've been baptized into Christ, not only in India, but also in Pakistan and Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, the whole region. And all of that is indirectly connected to that very first flight, that Arafat jet that took us to this major Indian city. But the impact on us was more than simply the mind-numbing magnitudes, the masses of humanity. It was the level at which everyone was living. It was the eye-opening vision of how the other half of the world lives. And certainly we were thinking, how can the gospel be taken to this nation and transform it? But we realized it's it's not just about telling people the good news of Jesus. If that excludes paying attention to where they are in their lives, economically, socially, socially. Because part of the good news is that there's help, that there's concrete compassion, that there's concern. And all of us realized we have really been neglecting hundreds of scriptures. It was really exciting to come back to London and to research and study and talk to leaders all around the world and to see the positive response. How this message of serving the poor resonated with so many brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think that for all the momentum that was built in the 1980s, time has a way of making it just a memory. When I think back to 1985, that seems like a long time ago. Are we doing right? Just because we give money to an organization, and and certainly there are many efficient organizations out there with high levels of integrity, and and I'm immensely proud of the work I've seen done in India and places like Cambodia, Soweto, in Russia, in the Ivory Coast and many other nations. I'm very proud of that. But just giving money... Is that what the Lord had in mind? Have we, as one brother put it, outsourced our responsibility to the poor? That is, simply paid someone else to do it? Well, let me explain. In the first century, there was a custom of which Jesus was very critical. And you'll find this in Matthew 15 and also in Mark 7. And quite simply... People would donate to the temple in the name of their parents. Of course, the Bible requires us to care for our parents, particularly as they age. Uh, The New Testament and the Old Testament are both very clear on the need uh, uh, for relatives to look after family members. But at this time, it was allowed, even encouraged, to give a monetary gift to the temple in return. Because it was given in the name of the parents, the son was absolved of his responsibility to take care of his father or mother. And Jesus said that they had many customs like that, things that circumvented the spirit of the law, and that these kinds of traditions simply nullified the word of God. Well, I hope that after listening to the lesson, you'll keep giving money, that this won't make you stop giving money. And, and we certainly have no intention of, of slowing down the, uh, the, the, the rate at which we give to worthy organizations. But this lesson is about personal involvement. Reaching out to the poor cannot be exclusively for evangelistic motives. A response I often meet in this discussion is, well, this might distract us from the mission of the church. Or maybe it would come as a question: well, how many of the people we serve will will end up becoming Christians? Well, is that the way we're supposed to dole out our good deeds to give compassion to the world? Should Christians not serve the poor, whether or not that leads to their conversion? Of course, that's optimal. That someone we serve ends up becoming a Christian. But do you really think the early church only gave to those they thought would respond positively? For example, didn't Jesus say when you give a banquet, invite those who won't be able to respond? Don't do it for what you'll get out of it. Oh, I can think of many examples like that. I'm sure you can too. Having a heart of compassion for the needy is part of biblical discipleship. Now, I realize it's so easy to talk about this. But what are we doing? To speak insincerely? Am I above that? Not at all. Today I finished reading the Gospel of John. One passage hit me and that was John 12 verse 6. And this is where Judas criticized Mary for wasting the the ointment on Jesus, when she anointed him. And uh, we simply read this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. Whoa. See, Judas sounded like he cared about the poor. He said, what are you doing wasting all this? The money could could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. But he didn't really care about the poor. They were just objects. They weren't subjects. He didn't have a heart of compassion. He actually cared more about money. We know that he was helping himself to the money bag. Talk is cheap. In James 2, be warm and well fed is a response someone planning to give no help would give verbally to a needy person. And can such faith save him? No, says James. We can't just wish for God to bless all the people and ask God to feed the poor. I'm going a bit further, though. I don't think we can just write a check or transfer money from one of our accounts into that of a a relief organization. There's something very hands-on in the New Testament. And the good deeds that the Christians did were face-to-face, it's my deep conviction, well, at least in the fellowship of churches in which I move most often, that most of us are apathetic towards the poor. Why is that? Why is it that we still spend most of our energy pursuing a comfortable life, that we strive to keep up with the Joneses, may I put it that way, Ecclesiastes 4.4, 4. Why is it that for all too many, giving to the poor is just money they give? Through the church, which is fine. Perhaps they do that once a month, but no more. Or perhaps there's a quarterly event in the inner city or a blood drive and, and a number of people will show up for that event. Is that really all God's looking for? Why the apathy? Well, I certainly think that materialism is a huge part of this because consumerism and materialism numb our hearts. And the scriptures talk about the way the concern about things can distract us and make us unfruitful. We read about that not just in the parable of the sower, but look at all the verses in James and in 1 John about the world and the worldly effect of of humanism and materialism. I think we've perhaps overly narrowly defined Christ's message. The good news, it, it's not just a way to be saved from, from damnation, it, it's bigger than that. It is ministry to the whole person. And I believe we're at a point where the lack of hands on, face to face, concrete expression of compassion for the needy is really hurting churches. It's harming evangelism. Ironically, many leaders are afraid that if more emphasis is put on reaching the poor or more emphasis is put on missions, that will hurt the, the, the operating budget of the church. I think that's ironic because I can't imagine how giving more time and money to the poor or to missions for that matter, would hurt the church. If anything, it would lead to it growing all the more. And so I see this attitude among a number of leaders. It's a general fear that, well, maybe we're doing too much in this area of, of benevolence and it's, it's really distracting us from the mission. Yet, church members are hungry for this. The message of compassion resonates with many We read books like Irresistible Revolution or Crazy Love, rich Christians living in an age of hunger, and many other titles that have touched our our hearts. And we felt, and the younger generation is certainly feeling, that this somehow lies at the heart of the Christian movement. Younger people are looking for authenticity. certainly seem to know the difference. They can tell when we talk about helping the poor versus actually are helping the poor. I think also many, particularly uh, teenagers, suspect that the differences among the world religions are only theoretical. That is, why wouldn't God accept a, a good Muslim or a Hindu who loved his neighbor or a Buddhist who, who had good intentions? They say, well, what's really the difference? Is it just different gods, different rituals? Well... When it comes to being involved with the needy of the world, there is a big difference if we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Authenticity is what's what's desired, not stagnation. In so many congregations, there's stagnation, there's desiccation, ossification, there's pride. What a contrast with the vitality and dynamism, flexibility, humility, the spirituality that we see in the Christian movement of the New Testament. Well, just as disciples of Christ are called to spread the word, to seek and save the lost, if I can quote Luke 19.10, so also we're called to seek and to serve the poor. Seek and serve. Both are part of what it means to follow Christ. Some Christians know this, and in fact live such a life. But I think for most of us, too often the world dictates our priorities. Life is busy. We've got to pay the rent or or the mortgage. We've got to pay for the car or pay the school fees. Our things are wearing out, and so we're buying new things to replace them. We're concerned about our health plan, our retirement Or how we'll provide a good life for our children or our grandchildren. And so serving the poor becomes an afterthought. Or maybe it becomes something that we outsource. That is, that we're willing to donate money to worthy causes. Maybe even write a large check. We're not personally involved. Yet, how unlike Jesus this is. Now, I'm aware that we can make false comparisons. I certainly don't think that the whole world needs to live at the same standard of living. Let's say the standard of living of of the average Ethiopian or Indian. It's easy to get into false comparisons and even feel false guilt. But the reason I'm doing this podcast is that my fear is that there's actually some true guilt and there's a failure to make comparisons, particularly between the kind of churches that we're building and the churches we see that vital spirit we see in the Bible itself, in the New Testament. Jesus interacted regularly with persons in all strata of society. I mean, he didn't avoid the rich and favor the poor because he didn't show favoritism. He didn't avoid the poor and just reach out to the shakers and movers of his world. No, he, he reached out to all kinds of people, and of course he was criticized for that. And certainly, he sought out people on the margins. He sought out those who were powerful. He sought out all who would listen, all strata of society. How do we present the gospel to others? Well, for many of you listening to this, you're comfortable having conversations, but you also rely upon study series. Now, many of my friends use study series to. Help pre- uh, present, almost said prevent, to present the gospel, and there's a version that we pioneered in London nearly 30 years ago, which even led to an evangelism handbook, which is called shining like stars. And occasionally, this book, which is now in its fifth edition, uh, has has uh, emphasized the twofold mission that is reaching the lost and helping the poor. And yet, in our series, we've never had. A a single study on serving the poor, on the biblical imperative. And we feel this is a glaring omission. And that's why this is being changed in the fifth edition. It's difficult, it's difficult to see how I can claim to be a disciple if I'm ignoring the hundreds of verses that deal with meeting others' needs, physical needs, being generous resisting my own materialism, helping the needy. There are more verses in the Bible on how we use our money, our wealth, our possessions, stewardship, than there are on faith, repentance, and baptism all added together. And so if we're just counting verses, we're seeing how long the list is in the concordance, helping the poor would come out as a very high priority. Now once again, our mission as disciples is twofold to preach the good news and help the poor. And we don't say, well, I'll just preach the good news any more than someone else can say, well, I'll just help the poor. Matthew 28 does not trump Matthew 25. The good news is more than just a formula about how to be saved. It's good news for the whole person. God cares about our whole person. Paul expresses his wish in First Thessalonians 5.23 that we would do well in our whole spirit, soul, and body. With these things in mind, I've put together a new study. Now, you may not care for the study, but if nothing else, I hope it will stimulate your thinking. The purposes of this study, which we could share with fellow Christians and with those we're reaching out to, purposes are three. To highlight the biblical imperative to serve the poor. To confront excuses that tend to isolate us from the needy. And to illustrate how such service is part of what it means to follow Christ. In this lesson, there are five passages. And I'll be reading them and commenting before we move into our conclusion. Starting with Psalm 82. You know, there's so many passages in the Old Testament that urge the people of God to compassionate action on behalf of the poor. And we see this not just in the law, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see it in the prophets. Certainly many of us think of Amos as one who challenges us to open our hearts to the the poor, to really care. Micah does that. Isaiah, especially, I think of chapter 58, the chapter on true fasting. God's people are called to care because God cares. Exodus 34, verse 6, Psalm 113, many other passages show how God cares for those in need. And in Psalm 82, this is the first passage, defending the needy is urged. I'm reading verses 3 and 4. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What is the sentiment expressed here? It's that something needs to be done. We need to do something. You might think, isn't, it just a, it's just, isn't this just an Old Testament teaching? Wasn't the, the Old Testament the covenant in which physical things were important? Whereas in the New Covenant, the New Testament, we look at the Spirit and the heart. Well, As you'll see, I think that's a false antithesis. The next passage is in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Before I read it, I think all true Christians would agree that God's love for us is exemplified above all in the incarnation of Christ. His care for us. The incarnation is God becoming flesh, a human being in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Sacrifice, position and status and he connected with the poor. He connected with everybody. He reached out to people of every social stratum and in him there was no favoritism. James 2 verses 1 to 13. Nor should there be favoritism among his followers. 2 Corinthians 8-9 falls in the middle of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians who are predominantly Gentile Christians in the area of Greece to care for their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters back in the eastern Mediterranean who are going through a time of famine. Here's what Paul wrote. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Once more, this passage lies at the heart of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians to have a heart for the poor. He's trying to influence Christians in Macedonia and Achaia, that is the whole area of Greece, to, to give, to give money, for uh, not just to show uh, uh, unity among Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians which is perhaps the deepest issue but, but also just to meet physical needs people were going to be starving and what is Paul's analogy well he says that Christ became poor so that we might become rich he came down to our level so this means that caring for the poor isn't just an Old Testament doctrine it's a thoroughly biblical teaching and you will find abundant passages on it in both testaments. Well, many know that, that we should love others. And both testaments teach to, to put God first and our neighbor second. But isn't it possible to define and redefine neighbor to the point that well we're scarcely involved with the needy anymore? And Jesus challenged such thinking and in a very famous parable, and this is the third passage in the study, Luke ten twenty nine. but I'm going to back up a little bit earlier. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, the parable that follows is the parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan the one who's neighborly, turns out to be the outsider. It's not the insider. It's not the Jew. It's not the priest or the Levite here. It's a Samaritan. Samaritans were half-breed, not quite orthodox in their religion, and despised by the Jews. As happens so often in the Bible, it's not the insider who gets it, it's the outsider. In this case the outsider is what could be viewed as as an enemy. I mean, there was great hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. And yet, didn't the Lord teach that we should do good to our enemies? Anyone is potentially a neighbor. A neighbor is not just someone who lives across the fence or someone who lives in my village. Isn't the Lord teaching that in the whole world anyone is potentially a neighbor and if that's the case the truth is there are no valid excuses if we're interpreting the first and second greatest commands in a way that excuses us from really being involved serving the poor then we're we're, we're shirking a fundamental biblical duty the fourth passage is James one twenty seven. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a very hard-hitting passage. So was the verse before it, verse 26. If an acceptable religion is one that looks after the needy, doesn't that imply that if we fail to do that, our religion is... Unacceptable? Orphans and widows in their distress are people who are hurting. Not all human beings are equally needy. And some who are in need feel it less. They feel the deprivation less than others. In Scripture, we see that God, God has a special place in his heart for the hurting, for those who've suffered significant loss. An orphan has lost his or her parents, a widow's lost a husband. The Bible also talks a lot about the aliens, the foreigners, who've lost their homeland, who are displaced. And also, let's add, the oppressed. James says that our religion is unacceptable to God if we don't share this concern. The book of James also emphasizes compassion just as his brother Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. The last passage is Galatians 2.10. Now, the Apostle Paul is generally known as a powerful church planter, an evangelist, an apostle, uh, taking the good news boldly where it had never been proclaimed before and, and establishing communities of believers. And yet, like Jesus Paul had a passion to change the world. Maybe we could say that biblical passion entails compassion. He had a passion to preach the gospel and to encourage the poor. When he met with the Jerusalem leaders, their concern was the same as his. Please listen to what he wrote in Galatians 2. And this is from the year 48 A.D. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, look at that. So many modern leaders would say, well, We'll be connected with you. You see, these were two spheres of influence, two two different international ministries who were connecting here, the Jerusalem apostles and Paul and his group. And so many leaders would say, well, if we connect with you, what's the financial implication? How will this affect our budget? If we associate with you, what's that going to do to the bottom line? Paul was encouraged because... James, Peter, and John ask that as long as we all continue to remember the poor, we're going to get along just fine. We preach the same gospel. And Paul says, This was the very thing I was eager to do. I guess, to be honest, sometimes in my life I've been more eager to help the poor than others. As a single person without a wife and children, It was easier to want to help the poor. You don't have as many things. And the younger you are, the less you care about them anyway, which is just as well since you're not going to have them. I think there have been times on and off, even as a married man, as a family man, I've thought, we've got to do something. And yet that, that visit to India in 1985 though it's still fresh in my mind, seems far away. It's easy, so easy for me to see the images. Well, not just to see them on a TV screen, but to see people up close and personal. And yet I'm surrounded by a culture that routinely outsources. Oh, it's true, there's a growing movement of hands-on compassion for the poor. But it's still a very small minority, even among those who claim to follow the Bible. Well, that's the study. There are five passages, and uh, as I teach it, these are memory passages: Psalm eighty-two, three and four; Second Corinthians eight, nine; Luke ten, twenty-nine; James one, twenty-seven; Galatians two, ten. You'll find all of this in the notes that accompany this podcast. There are some further passages on poverty and materialism as well. I put another six or seven in the notes. Well, what can I do? What are some ways in which I can serve? And uh, I think you'll see all of these uh, are, are deeply biblical. We can feed the hungry, visit prisoners, clothing, clothe the naked, help someone build a house, adopt a child, encourage the agent. Sell possessions and give to the poor. Visit a country in the developing world. And how about this? Take your children with you on that kind of a visit. I strongly recommend that. Inviting the poor into our homes. Fasting and praying for the needy. Comforting widows. Assisting in disaster relief. Providing medical care. Fostering a child. Reaching out to refugees. And I'm sure that this could be much longer. The point being, it shouldn't be too hard to think of something. And then there's some concluding questions, which round off the study. Do you think the Lord is pleased with us when we always serve the poor at a distance? To what extent can giving money to a good cause substitute for active involvement? Do you agree with the statement, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? When was the last time you ate in a poor person's home or had a disadvantaged person into your home? Are you ready to study out what the Bible says about this essential topic are there any lifestyle changes you need to make as a result of this study? As my wife and I have studied the scriptures, we've made various decisions to give to organizations who are efficient at combating poverty and indigence in the world, to distribute goods to the needy in the developing world. And I have a lot of opportunities because I often visit poor countries and I can take things with me Yes, we've taken part in inner-city work parties. We've adopted a child. There there are millions of children who need adopting. We've brought our children with us to third-world countries a number of times. We've also decided to stay out of debt. We're much more able to help others when we aren't saddled with debt. If our theology, if our Bible reading is not changing our lifestyle, is not producing in us a desire A passion and eagerness to help the poor, then something's wrong. I like to read a poem which became the basis for a little book we wrote in the 1980s called I Was Hungry. It goes like this I was hungry. You fed my food to your pigs, you blamed it on the markets. You blamed it on the Marxists. You told me the poor were blessed. You really did mean to write to your congressman. You used me as a dumping ground for your food mountain. You promised to pray for me. You were sure I could manage on welfare. You switched the channel to avoid the sight of me. You paid a pittance for my harvest. You sold my government arms to keep me quiet. You used my land to grow flowers for your table. You told me to get lost. You'll find the words of this poem, again, in the notes that accompany the podcast. Let me just say three things in closing before I let you go. In a number of ministries I've visited People are not accepted as church members if they're unwilling to help the needy. That is to personally serve the poor. That may sound very radical. You say, well, what what about the poor people themselves? Even the poor are expected to actively serve others. This is phenomenal. Expecting a heart of compassion to serve the poor on the part of every church member. Few congregations, however, have such high expectations. And I'd say if you have a conviction about these matters, please speak up. But first, study the scriptures. Come to your own convictions and pray. When this is part of our evangelism, when serving the poor is part of our church life and our personal lifestyles, then the gospel message lived out in disciples of Jesus Christ that gospel message will make sense to the watching world. It can be good news today, just as it was in the days of the birth of Christianity. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.